You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, all. Uh, happy Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's. I uh, hope you had a great Thanksgiving week. Uh, Sean, I was just thinking, man, today may be the first day I have to join the run club after this week. Uh, but uh, I ate quite a, quite a hefty meal or two uh, this week. And I, I hope you enjoyed time, uh, whether you were here or uh, with family. Uh, Abby and I got the chance to travel down uh, to North Carolina, and we took our kids on a seven-hour road drive to see family for Thanksgiving. Now, uh, taking kids on a seven-hour road trip is not always the greatest thing in the world, but we were trying to inspire them to be thankful Uh, for the things that they have. And so we asked them on the trip, uh, what are you thankful for this year, girls? And when you ask kids that, you uh, never get the answer you think you're going to get. Uh, you think, oh, they're going to say how much they love their mommy, daddy. They're thankful for their family. They're thankful for their house. They're thankful for all the things that we would hope that they're thankful for. So our youngest, naturally, Harper, uh, wants to speak up. And she says that she is thankful for her oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> If you know our daughter well, you know that she has an unhealthy addiction to oatmeal. Uh, We have to wean her off like five meals a day of oatmeal. And then she says she's thankful for her people. And if you've never heard her refer to her people, what she's referring to is the nativity scene in our house, where baby Jesus and all the wise men, the shepherds, are her people, and she carries them around everywhere she goes. Ellie goes next, and she says that she's thankful for her stuffies was she continues to somehow accumulate more and more every year. Uh, but specifically this year, she's thankful for her pilot bear. Uh, thank you, Ben, for that Christmas gift last year. It's, it's, made, it's made the top of the list now. But then she says she's thankful for her friends at church. And then she says she's thankful for Grandpa's canoe. <laughs> she's never even been in Grandpa's canoe before. And I asked her, I said, why are you thankful for Grandpa's canoe? And she says, because the canoe keeps us safe in the water. I thought, wow, that's a very practical answer, Ellie. I love their crazy personalities and the ways in which they give thanks, but it is true as we go into our text today that ships are designed to keep us safe in water. They're designed to keep us from the dangers of the water. Now, if you were asked Paul that question, Paul, do ships keep you safe? He would probably say no. Paul's been in multiple shipwrecks and somehow he has survived all of them. And if you ask Paul today to say, Paul, what are you thankful for? Give your top 10 things that you're thankful for this, this year as he would enter into this, uh, this text today at Acts 27. Paul would probably not say that he was thankful for the storm that he's about to endure. Maybe he wouldn't say that he's thankful for the shipwreck that's about to incur. However, precisely what we see him doing in the middle of this text today as we study this Precisely in the middle of the greatest storm, perhaps, of his life that he's ever endured. Paul's breaking bread and giving thanks to God. Right in the midst of the storm, Paul is looking to God and he's giving thanks. Now, how does that happen? It's not natural for any of us to want to give thanks when we're going through hard times. It's not natural for any of us if we were to metaphorically go through a storm, a season of suffering, a season of trouble, to give thanks, to be thankful, to have a heart of gratitude. What motivates Paul to do such a thing? What would inspire Paul to do this? Well, as we read our text today, we'll find that the thing that inspires Paul, 
the thing that allows him to not only endure this storm that he's about to undertake, but to give thanks in the midst of it, is his trust that God always keeps his promises. He has this unwavering trust in his God that God will always keep his promises. And today as we look at this text, we're going to see that as the main idea. That as God is working through this storm to bring Paul to Rome, just as he promised, he will be faithful and sure to those promises. He will always keep his promise. Paul knew it. Even in the middle of the storm, he knew that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. And so today we're going to study this text, and we're going to focus in on this main idea. And our outline is going to be pretty basic today. Uh, it's Thanksgiving weekend, so we went basic today. Number one, we're going to do a recap, and it's going to be a brief recap of Acts 1 through 26. Don't, don't uh, be, be too put off by that. We're not going to go through all the chapters. Uh, but we do just want to bring everybody up to speed where we are in the book of Acts as we get kind of towards the end here. And then secondly, we're going to look at the storm specifically and also the shipwreck, and we're going to learn a few lessons from the storm of how Paul is able to trust in the promises of God how he's able to keep his faith even in the middle of a hard time. Now, although this is a historical, uh, actual historical event, we're not just saying the storm is metaphorical, but we do think that the storms, and typically in the Bible, storms do uh, act as a metaphor for suffering in life. And Paul is enduring something very hard here. He's enduring an incredible hardship, and I think we can learn from Paul today that as we endure storms of life, how to respond with trust and faith in a God who keeps his promises. And so let's first look at a recap of the book of Acts. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We've been uh, tracking through the book of Acts now for several months. And the book of Acts really teaches us, if you're new to that, that, this particular book of the Bible, it really teaches us the history of Christianity from the earliest days. It begins with the resurrected Jesus as he's teaching his disciples. And then he ascends into heaven. But before he ascends into heaven, he promises that his spirit, the Holy Spirit, would be poured out upon his people. And the Spirit would come and empower his people and move amongst his people to bear witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ, to bear witness to his uh, kingdom and teach about his kingdom. And that's precisely what happens in the early chapters of the book of Acts. The people of God are on the move, and this movement of Christianity begins in Jerusalem, and it begins to take root in Jerusalem. But it also stirs up quite a lot of controversy. And there's several leaders in Jerusalem that want to persecute these new Christians. And in their persecution, we see that as the book of Acts progresses, the Christians move out of Jerusalem as the center, and through persecution, they're scattered to new regions with the gospel message. And we meet the chief persecutor, Saul himself. And Saul wanted to persecute Christians more than anyone. And on the way to Damascus to do just that, we learn that Saul encounters the risen Jesus. And when Saul encounters the risen Jesus, everything changes about him. We see a name change, and he is no longer known as Saul, but he goes by his Roman name, Paul. And as he goes by this new name with this newfound faith in the risen Jesus Christ, he proclaims this message. He goes from chief persecutor to missionary and church planner throughout the Roman Empire. And we study throughout those chapters what's called his missionary journeys, as Paul traveled to many of the places even listed in our text today to start new churches, to bear witness of the resurrected Jesus. He makes many friends along the way. He, he, he plants many churches along the way. And then as his time is coming near, he knows that God is compelling him to go back to Jerusalem by way to Rome. And even though all of his friends tell him, don't go to Jerusalem, there's only trouble for you, Paul, he still goes compelled by the Spirit. And as Paul goes to Jerusalem, we, we studied this a few weeks ago, he is arrested and he's put on trial. 
And the first person he's presented to on trial is Felix. Now, Felix doesn't want to do much with him. Felix puts Paul back off into prison until the next governor takes his seat. And that was Festus, who we saw last week. And Festus eventually brings Paul forward trial before King Agrippa. And in all these cases, Paul, compelled by the Spirit, is bearing witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And true, in every single one of these trials, the charges never really stick, because all Paul is doing is bearing hope that he has in Jesus Christ. But at the end of it, as this, uh, this Roman legal machine continues to move, they can't just get rid of Paul, so they keep him in prison, and then Paul pills to the highest court of the land, which is to pill to Caesar himself in Rome. And Paul has made it his aim to get to Rome. And God comes to him, and he tells him, take courage, Paul. This promise will be seen through. You will appeal to Caesar in Rome. And so now Paul is on this journey to Rome, and we pick up in our story today the beginning of this voyage. In verse 1, the text says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adraminium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When I was in, uh, in college, or in fact, when I was graduating college, my brother and I lived together, and one night, late at night, we watched the movie Twister. Have you ever seen the movie Twister? It's a great movie, a classic. We got so inspired by that movie that that night we decided that we wanted to become professional storm chasers. And so in the middle of the night, we researched online how to take accredited classes to become storm chasers. Uh, now, although that was a very rash decision, it was something that inspired us within that, music, uh, that, that movie, the, the, the adrenaline rush of being caught up in a storm. Now, it's one thing to watch a reenactment of a storm on a movie. It's another thing to be caught up in it. And what we're introduced here in the beginning of this text is to a real-life storm chaser. He didn't know he was going to be a real-life storm chaser, but he ended up becoming one, and that is the author Luke. Luke is writing this, and he is uh, writing a very historical and accurate depiction of what is about to happen. He's not just telling us a metaphorical story of a storm that's about to happen. He is like the Jim Cantori of the Mediterranean Sea. He is going to give us a detailed account of the ships that they take, of the weather reports, of the, the tactics that the sailors use, a very accurate and detailed account of what is about to transpire. Now, we're first introduced to this commander named Julius. So far, Paul has not been treated very well by people of the Roman army. And likewise, many in the Roman army, in fact, if you were a commander of the Roman army, you would not treat prisoners with much respect. But here we see something different about Julius. Julius sees something different in Paul. And the text says that he begins to treat him kindly. And not only does he treat him kindly, but Julius trusts Paul. There's something about Paul's character that allows Julius to trust him to the point where he allows him to be accompanied by friends and cared for. And we see a beautiful picture of why we need community once again. Paul's life was characterized by his friendships, by the community of people that he surrounded himself. Everywhere he went, Paul had friends. He had people who cared for him. He had people who would invest in him. And we see a beautiful picture here and a reminder of why we need the church, of why we're here for one another, 
of why we can give thanks today that we get to be a part of a community of friends, of people who truly like each other. And Paul had that here in this story. But the story continues, and they get back on the boat, and as the text continues, we see that Paul, although not a trained sailor, understands that this is not a time you want to travel. This is not a time that you want to travel west. In fact, any time after mid-September, it was dangerous to travel west in the Mediterranean. And so what does Paul do? Well, he speaks up, and he tells them, hey, this is not a good idea. I'm warning you, we shouldn't make this travel. So they get together, and they say, well, I don't think Paul's right. I think we should trust in the pilot and the sailors and their knowledge of this. And so let's continue. And so they find themselves in a city of Myra. And in Myra, they, they change ships. So they were on this small port ship, and then they load up on what's probably a freight ship coming from Egypt to Italy. And on this freight ship, they're going to take their voyage across the Mediterranean to the coast of Italy. Now, we find in the text that this is not quite how it happens. But just way of, of kind of putting this in a picture form for you, uh, there should be a map on the screen here, and this will kind of help us see uh, where they were going on their voyage. And so they begin at the beginning down in Caesarea, and they make their way on the small ship up the coastline all the way until they get to Myra. And then Myra, they change to a larger ship, a freight ship, and now they're making themselves their way down to the Lee, which is around this, the island of Crete. And they find themselves in Fair Haven. And Fairhaven was a port city, uh, but it wasn't a place you would want to endure winter. And so as they get to Fairhaven, they realize that they can't endure winter in Fairhaven, so they got to make their way to the next port, which is Phoenix, which is on the top end of the island of Crete. Now, as you can see on the map, they never make it there. And that's precisely where we pick up how things go array after Fairhavens. Let's look at verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands." When neither sun nor stars appeared, verse 20, for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And so they try to make this risky move to get to the, the west port of Phoenix, and they never make it. A wind called a northeaster comes and sweeps up the boat and puts it out to sea. And this is no ordinary storm that they're facing here. This is like a hurricane on the Mediterranean. In fact, the text says that for 14 days, they didn't see the sun during the day nor the moon at night. In other words, they had no navigation system. They were hopeless, blind, helpless at sea. But something else is happening here. Another occurrence that is bizarre. As we continue in the text, we'll see that Paul, this prisoner, is slowly gaining credibility. And as the, the, they continue in the storm, Paul continues to grow in his leadership of the ship. And just to kind of summarize what happens next, as they're, they're, they're freaking out and they're wondering what's going to happen, Paul comes with these words of courage, as a good leader should, to calm the sailors, the soldiers, and the prisoners. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. 
And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sell with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul comes and he stands before the people as they're losing all hope has been abandoned. They're losing hope. And he says, do not be afraid. I have heard from God. And God has told me that no one will die in this storm, but everything else will be lost, including the ship. Paul rises to the occasion here, and he leads courageously in this moment, and he brings about peace in the midst of chaos for those who are on the ship. And as the text continues uh, further down, and we'll just kind of paraphrase this this part, uh, as they are hungry, as they're, again, losing uh, their, their hope, Paul comes, he provides food for people, all 276 people on board. He encourages them. He prepares them for the shipwreck, which will save their lives. And we get down to verse 39. It says, Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they still think they can save the ship, even after Paul says the ship's going to be lost. In verse 40, So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, and at the same time losing the ropes, they tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the winds, they made for the beach. And so they're thinking, okay, we can make it to the beach, we can save the ship, but that's not what happens. We see that the ship is wrecked just as God prophesied. And then in verse 44, it says, And so it was that all were brought safely to land. God remains true to his word. Everything's lost on the ship, including the ship itself. But every single person, including the prisoners, make it safely to land. Now, as the text continues into chapter 28, we see that they find themselves on the island of Malta. And as they they, uh, approach the native people, they're welcomed with great hospitality. The text says, after we were brought safely through, we uh, then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And Paul, being the servant leader that he is, in in verse 3, he begins to go and gather sticks for the fire. But then something happens. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. This is like a fear of mine. That when I'm out in the woods, like gathering wood, uh, that a snake is going to jump out and bite me. And that's precisely what happens here to Paul. He's bitten by this viper, and the people witness it. And what do they look at? They say, oh my gosh, they saw the creature hanging from his hand, and they say to one another... Could you imagine that, like the viper just hanging from Paul's hand for a second, and they're all looking at him saying, no doubt this man is a murderer. Don't judge a book by its cover too soon, right? No, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, meaning the goddess of justice, has not allowed him to live. And so these superstitious people look and they see this bizarre uh, moment happening that Paul is bit by this viper, and they, they, they say, okay, well, this is a sign from the goddess that this man is in the wrong. He must be a wicked person. He must be a murderer. But then what happens next? He shakes off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And so then these superstitious people, they they do a complete 180 and say, oh, he's not a murderer. He must be a god, (laughs) right? Like there's something something, uh, deity about this guy. There's something uh, different about him. And there was. It wasn't that Paul was a god, but it was that the god of all power was mightily working through Paul. That the God of all power, the God of the heavens and the earth and everything within it was displaying his protection upon Paul, was displaying his power through Paul. 
as the text continues in his time on Malta, Paul is praying and healing people, and people are coming to him and experiencing healing through the power of God working through Paul. And at the end of his time on Malta, it says in verse 10, that they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sell, they put on board whatever we needed. You see, not only did God remain true to his promise to get Paul and all 276 people on board safely to land, but then through the, the God of all power working powerfully through Paul on Malta, the people not only found favor with Paul, but they gave him everything they needed to complete their voyage. Now, what are some things that we can learn from this text today? There's a lot here. Uh, what are some things that we can learn about how Paul endures this storm, how he endures this trial that can apply to our lives as we go through our own storms? Well, the first thing is the paradox of the storm. The paradox of the storm. I use the word paradox here because there are things in this story that seem to be self-contradicting. If you look down in verse 22, when Paul is talking to them and he urges them to take heart, he says, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And as everyone's scared, Paul is reassuring them that God is in control, that he's going to make a way that no one would lose their life, that no one would die. Now, later in the text, as we read down in verse 30 and 31, at one point, the sailors are scared again. And even after Paul has reassured them that they will not lose their life, they try to escape the ship. They go to the other side of the ship very discreetly, and they try to let down this lifeboat to escape the ship. And then Paul goes, and he tells the centurion, and they go and they say this in verse 31. Paul says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So what do the soldiers do? Well, they cut the ropes of the lifeboat so that no one can escape. What Paul's trying to say here to the centurion, like, hey, like, guys, if these soldiers abandon ship, or excuse me, if these sailors abandon ship, we don't have anyone to, to sail the ship anymore, right? We're just a bunch of prisoners and soldiers. If all the sailors leave, who's going to guide the ship? Now, this seems to be contradicting, right? That if one end, if God is in complete control and Paul assures everyone that no one's going to lose their life, why does it matter what the sailors do? Why does it matter whether or not they jettison the boat? It seems to contradict itself, right? And a lot of times it's because we think in categories of either or, right? Either God is in control and our decisions and choices don't matter, or that we're free and our decisions matter and God is somehow distant or he's holding back or he's actually not in control of the situation. But here Paul doesn't go, well, God is in control, guys. Go Do what you want. Like, go snorkeling. I don't care. <laughs> go on an excursion. You're going to be safe. It doesn't matter, right? He doesn't say that. No, he tells them, you've got to stay on the boat or we won't be saved. There's consequences to our actions. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not as if if God is 100% control, then we're 0% responsible for what we do. And it's not as if we're 100% free, then God is 0% involved in our lives. Or 80-20 or 50-50. No, Paul says it's 100% that God was in control of the situation. And 100% of the decisions that they made mattered and had consequences. And this is vitally important to understand when we're going through troubled times, we're going through hard times, we're in the middle of a storm in our own lives. To know that our decisions that we make, they matter. But to know also that there is a plan unfolding that is bigger than the storm we're going through. That God is in control. That we can't mess up his plan. But that he wants us to act and react in the midst of the storm. And what, why this is important for Paul is because it allows him not to waver to passivity and allows him not to panic. 
You see, when we think uh, perhaps God is in control and our choices don't matter, we can become passive. We can become idle. We can, think, you know, we can become indifferent, right? It doesn't matter what happens. God is in control. But on the other end, if we, if we think it's up to us fully and we don't trust that God is in control, what naturally happens is we panic. We become paralyzed with fear and anxiety. We become frightened in the middle of hard times. But Paul says we don't have to panic. We can be calm because God is in control. And we don't have to become passive, but we can be courageous because God is working in us. And here in this text, in the paradox of the storm, Paul recognizes this, that God is both in control and that the decisions and the choices that people make matter and allows him to lead courageously despite the storm that he's in. But the second thing we notice is that there's purpose in the storm. It's not only the paradox of the storm, but there's purpose in the storm. It's a big question, right? Why did God put Paul through this? Why did God allow this storm to happen? You see, one thing that's interesting about the storm is that when the storm was over, Paul was actually closer to his final destination than he would have been otherwise. You see, if they would have just tried to sail to the port of Phoenix and remain there for winter, he wouldn't have got to his destination. But here, even through the storm, God was bringing Paul to his final destination. Now, we don't often understand why we have suffering in this life, especially in the middle of a storm. It's incredibly hard to comprehend. But in the Bible, in every single suffering, every single account of a storm, there seems to be a general purpose. And that general purpose is that those storms are for good. That's hard to hear. And I don't begin to, to sit here and to understand what every single person in this room is going through right now. I'm not going to sit here and begin to understand the pain and the heartache that you have probably felt even this week, perhaps. What I do know is what the scriptures say is true. That every storm and that every suffering that we endure is for good. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a man named Jacob who has 12 sons. And in the story, he has these 12 sons, and he has his favorite son, who is Joseph. Uh, now, if you want to have a family one day, it's not a good idea to have a favorite child, <laughs> especially when you have 12 of them, right? And so the, the other brothers, they grow bitter over time because of the favoritism and the spoiling of Joseph. One day, they come up with this plan to sell him into slavery to Egypt. And he goes into Egypt as a slave, and he works hard, but it doesn't matter because he's falsely accused. And he's thrown into prison. In the middle of the story of Joseph's life, we see one bad thing after one bad thing after one bad thing happening. And he finds himself in this dungeon in prison praying, and as if, as if God's not even hearing his prayers because one bad thing after one bad thing after one bad thing continues to happen. It's like Joseph's in this storm, where day in and day out, everything seems to be going wrong in his life. But then we get to the end of Joseph's life. And we notice that every single one of these things that were bad, every single bad thing happened for a reason. The storm of him being sold into slavery and being in a dungeon, among the many other things that happened to him, are what God used for him to meet the people he meets and to do the things that he needs to do to become one of the most powerful people in Egypt. And at the end of his story, it's because of these bad things that he is able to save thousands of people from starvation. It's because of these things that he had to weather and endure that he saves his own family from starvation. That he becomes one of the most well-known and powerful people in Egypt 
a person of greatness, that he's able to restore and heal his relationship with his brothers. In other words, it's because of the bad things that happened that the good comes out of that at the end of Joseph's life. And he says this famous verse in Genesis 52, his brothers, verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's almost precisely exactly what Paul promises us in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul doesn't say that all things are good. He doesn't say that every cloud has a silver lining. He doesn't say if you just, if you just look at that storm in the right light, you'll see that it's actually a good thing, right? That's not what Paul says. What Paul is saying here is that from the vantage point of eternity, from the vantage point that God holds, the point of heaven, that even the most terrible things that happen in this world are working for good. That from the vantage point of all eternity, God is working out all things in history, even those of evil intent, to only accomplish the opposite of what evil intended to accomplish. And there's no better picture of this than Jesus himself. That Jesus in his earthly ministry was so great. He's healing leopards. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's, he's giving sight to the blind. He's feeding the hungry. As one commentator says, th- that because of all the good deeds of Jesus' life, it seemed as if sickness was virtually banished in Palestine. He was doing all of this, and where does he find himself at the end of his life? On a cross. Suffering. And as people are standing around, I can imagine them saying, how can God bring any good out of this? How could God bring any good out of all the horrible things that had happened to Jesus? The anger of the world, the religious authorities, the fury of Satan himself. What did all those bad things done to to, to Jesus, what did they do for him? What did they accomplish for us? Well, we know the story. They accomplished the exact opposite of what they wanted to. See, evil intended to kill Jesus. But through his death and his resurrection, it accomplished salvation for the world. Now, it's easy sometimes for us to look at the story of Jesus and say, well, we see that. We see the good that came out of that. But I don't know why, I don't know why God's putting me through this storm. And if you're asking that question today, you're not alone. You're not alone. It's a hard question. It's a question that we should ask God. But notice that because of the purpose that God has for you, that even when we go through the the evils of this world, the sufferings of this world, we can trust that God is exercising his power over history in a way that in the long run, all the evil, all the suffering that is here in this world, all the storms of life, what they intend will be overthrown. What they intend will only accomplish the opposite Meaning that in every single storm, God will bring about good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Understanding this allows us to go through storms with a greater purpose. To know, just like Paul, that he is working in us. It allowed Paul to have peace in the midst of the storm. It allowed Paul to give thanks to God in the midst of the storm. It allowed Paul to bear witness to 276 people of the faithfulness of his God. And then finally we see it's in the presence in the storm. Last encouragement for us this morning is the presence in the storm. How did Paul go through this storm and come out better off than when he went in it, right? 
How does Paul's faith grow stronger and not worse off when he goes through this storm? Well, I think it's natural for us when we go through hard seasons of life, when we go through suffering, to think, well, has God abandoned me? Is he punishing me? Is he just a bad God? Does he, does he even care for me? Right? Is he with me? But notice in verse 23, when Paul gives this word from the Lord to this people, he says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. That's moving. Paul says, I know the God, the God to whom I belong. See, when God enters relationships with his people, he says, you are my people. You belong to me. Using the words of belonging and mine are terms of intimacy. We say that to the people who are closest to us. That's my brother. That's my family. I belong to them. That's my children. They belong to me. And here Paul is being comforted by the presence of his God. In the middle of the storm, he knows I am his. I belong to him. He is mine. He is committed to me. He loves me. Paul doesn't make the mistake of being tempted to think because I'm in the storm, that means that God is perhaps either punishing me or that he doesn't care for me. But instead, he feels the closeness of God to him. He knows that he is with him. He knows that he is right there in the midst of the storm. And because of that, the storm actually makes Paul's faith stronger. It actually makes Paul's trust in the Lord greater. How do we know that when we go through storms that God is not abandoning us? It's because that there was one storm that we absolutely deserved. And that is because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have loved the Lord our God with all of our mind, soul, strength, and heart as much as we should. And none of us have loved our neighbor flawlessly as we should. We all deserve the storm of God's wrath. But yet God did not abandon us. And in fact, Jesus himself went into that storm for us. And he says, if you believe in me, then you can know that I took that storm for you. I felt it in my heart. I was consumed so that you could be saved. I was abandoned on the cross. I was abandoned in my suffering. And because I got the suffering you deserve, you can know that when you go through hard times, when you go through storms, I'm not going to abandon you. I am with you. I am for you. And I can bring you through it. See, only Christianity, of all the other religions, only Christianity says that God has been with us in our suffering. Only Christianity claims that God has suffered himself. Have you ever gone through a storm and said, man, I've been betrayed. I've had people stab me in the back. I've experienced great pain in my body. I've suffered tremendous illness. I might possibly be facing death. Well, so is God. And so has God. He has faced all those things. And because of that, we can know that we belong to him and that he is with us in our suffering. And so as we come to our time of the Lord's Supper, what can give us ultimate peace today? What can give us ultimate peace in the midst of this world? It's not success. It's not the things that we would think could give us peace and comfort. It's in the promise that God is with us and that he keeps his promises and that he is for us 
And although in the storm he may not give us an answer that we want, he has given us a person. He's given us a relationship. He's given us Jesus, who will walk right with you in the midst of the storm. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.